This is Radio 3. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. Welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3, the time's 8.03 in Hong Kong, on Tuesday the 7th of February. The border between Hong Kong and mainland China was fully reopened yesterday, and most pandemic restrictions for cross-border travellers lifted. Secretary for Security Chris Tang, who inspected several checkpoints, said as of noon Monday, some 83,000 travellers had crossed the border, with 50,000 of them heading north and the rest entering the SAR. Chief Executive John Lee, who's visiting Saudi Arabia, has said Hong Kong is now wide open for tourists and businesses. Hong Kong and Saudi Arabia have signed six bilateral agreements to forge closer ties between stock exchanges, business associations and technology firms. Among them were MOUs between Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing and Saudi Tadawal Group, as well as the Hong Kong General Chamber of Commerce and Riyadh Chamber. Hong Kong artificial intelligence firm SenseTime also exchanged an MOU with Saudi event management company Seller to cooperate in areas such as smart city and digital tourism. Chief Executive John Lee has said the two economies are entering a new level of cooperation. And Hong Kong authorities hope to lure the world's largest oil company, Saudi Aramco, for a secondary listing here on the city's stock exchange. On Monday, the CE met Amin Nasser, the president and CEO of the state-owned oil company in Saudi Arabia. Mr. Lee wrote on his Facebook page that he had told Mr. Nasser about the unique advantages Hong Kong enjoys and the services the city can provide for the group, including supporting its listing in Hong Kong, handling future funding arrangements and unlocking investment opportunities in the SAR. And Clara Chan, acting deputy chief of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, told lawmakers yesterday that Hong Kong will host the Bank for International Settlements Basel Committee on Banking Supervision Meeting next month. It'll be the first major international financial event in the city since Hong Kong reopened the border in December. And Indonesia's economic growth climbed to its strongest in nine years last year, fueled by a global commodity boom that sent exports to a record high. The Indonesian economy expanded 5.3% in 2022. Statistics Indonesia data showed on Monday, and that's its best annual growth rate since 2013. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong, CEO of Cathasia Securities and Will Denya, US economist at Gavakal. And with a view from Japan, is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. On Wall Street, US stocks fell as investors feared higher interest rates following the much stronger than expected US jobs report on Friday. The S&P 500 slid 0.6% to close at 4,111. The Dow rebounded from a loss of more than 240 points at the low of the day to close 35 points lower, or 0.1%. At 33,891. The Nasdaq Composite posted the biggest loss of the three major indices, sliding 1% to end at 11,887. 
The Pan-European Stock 600 Index stumbled by 0.8%. London's FTSE 100 retreated from its all-time high, reached last week, losing 0.8%. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index lost 438 points, or 2%. That's the most in seven weeks, to end at 21,222. The Tech Index slumped 3.7%. On the mainland, the CSI 300 index of the largest companies listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen closed with a half a percent gain after rebounding more than 2% earlier in the day and putting the index back in bull market territory, rallying more than 20% from October's low. Oil prices rallied on the back of worsening geopolitical tensions and the Turkey earthquake, with Brent crude oil up almost 2% at $81.36 a barrel. Gold ended the day unchanged at $1,868 an ounce. U.S. Treasury bond yields rose after Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic raised the prospect of a 50 basis point rate increase next month and a higher peak rate. The benchmark 10-year yield rose by 13 basis points to 3.65%. And the more interest rate-sensitive two-year yield added 18 basis points to 4.49%. And the dollar rallied for the third straight day after the super hot jobs report, with the US dollar index up 0.6%. The euro is trading this morning at $1.7 and a quarter cents. And the yen dropped over 1% to 132.62 versus the dollar after the Nikkei reported that the Japanese government had approached Bank of Japan Deputy Governor Masuyoshi Amamiya about succeeding Haruhiko Kuroda as head of the BOJ. However, on Monday, the Japanese government denied the report. Mr. Amamiya is the current deputy governor at the BOJ and is seen as likely to continue current easy monetary policy. Sterling is trading this morning at $1.20 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 43 cents. The Chinese yuan weakened a third of a percent to 6.79 in offshore markets on increasing US-China tensions. And Bitcoin has dropped 2% back below $23,000. And if we take a look around Asia-Pacific markets this morning, they're just opening up for this Tuesday morning. The SX200 in Australia down about 0.1%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is rising a quarter of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea is flat. And futures markets pointing to a 25-point gain for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Times 8.09 and a half and over in our Queensway studio this morning we find our two guests, James Wong, CEO of Cathasia Securities. Morning James. Good morning Peter. And also with us is Will Denyer, US economist at Gavacal. Welcome back Will. Thank you, Peter. The border between Hong Kong and mainland China was fully reopened yesterday and most pandemic restrictions for cross-border travellers were lifted. Secretary for Security Chris Tang said some some 83,000 travellers had crossed the border by lunchtime, 50,000 of them heading north, the rest coming here to the SAR. Chief Executive John Lee has said Hong Kong is now wide open for tourists and businesses. So, James, is this effectively a full reopening now of the border between Hong Kong and mainland China? Are we wide open for tourists and businesses? Uh, yes, we are, um, regulation-wise, but if we look at the uh, people going in and out of China, uh, of Hong Kong, I'd say most of the people I know uh, are going back to China instead of uh, people coming from China to Hong Kong. Basically, everybody I know that were from, that are from uh, 
mainland China and have been working in Hong Kong are using this uh, this uh, relaxed this East uh, regulation to go back to China in the during the Chinese uh, New Year. So I, I but a lot of the people that I know that uh, I expect to come to Hong Kong once the regulation was war East. Uh, did not come just yet. So and why is that? What, what, why, why are they being more cautious about coming here? And what do we need to do to attract them? Uh, I don't think they, they find the need to come to Hong Kong just yet. If they wanted to buy some, uh, some, uh, some things that they couldn't uh, uh, acquire in mainland China, they could just go to the Hainan province. province. Uh, there, there is some, uh, some uh, new custom benefits, uh, some, some, uh, uh, benefits for uh, people buying stuff uh, outside of China. And uh, besides, I don't think they really want to go outside just yet because they have seen a lot of uh, pandemic news mm. for country from countries overseas. And they, I think they have some revived some level of uh, uh, domestic traveling, but not mm. a lot of people, not, not a lot of uh, international traveling just yet. People are saying that all the pandemic restrictions have now gone. That isn't strictly true, is it? Because we do have the mask mandate and that was a pandemic uh, era restriction still in force. Is, is that putting travellers off? I don't think that matters uh, that much uh, because we, we already know the uh, the people in Hong Kong, the uh, the, the enforcement of uh, the mask mandate in Hong Kong is not that strict anymore. And uh, if they want, if the people from mainland China want to come to Hong Kong, they could come. They, the, the mask mandate itself or any other the restrictions that are still left, I don't think that's a thing that's stopping people uh, from China to come to to Hong Kong. Well, it's, it's good news, I suppose, for the economy, isn't it? The local economy and also, I suppose, the global um, economy as well, although the, the Hong Kong GDP data wasn't good. If you look at the PMI, which is more forward-looking, that was showing um, quite a nice rebound in sentiment. Yeah, I, I, on the mass thing, I would say that it's more of a deterrent for Western tourists who are not as used to wearing masks versus Chinese tourists who are, you know, and Japanese tourists, Asian tourists who are more more accustomed to it. Uh, but even in the West, uh, even for Western travelers, especially business travelers, I am definitely starting to see people coming back. Um, just anecdotally, mm. both whether it be family, friends, uh, business colleagues, uh, I, I'm starting to see. All, all sorts of travelers starting to come back for the first time in three years. So I do, I do think we're going to see a pretty significant um, rebound there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great for the economy. How, how close do you think we are to getting back to pre-pandemic times? Obviously, these restrictions have gone. You do get the sense, though, isn't it, that it's going to be a cautious rebound in the economy. There's going to be some ups and downs here, and it, it's going to take a bit of time. Yeah, I, I mean, Hong Kong is right on the side of... Uh, China, which you know, I think is going to rebound pretty strongly this year. Uh, so the rest of the world is dealing with a hangover from their post-COVID recovery, mm -hmm. uh, whereas China is just now starting to have their post-COVID recovery. I mean, they obviously had some form of a post-COVID recovery, but this is the the, the proper recovery going forward. And, and Hong Kong, I think, does stand to benefit. You know, it, it is interesting that um, James is not seeing mainland Chinese people that he knows coming back yet. I, w I, I don't know why. Um, what are all the reasons for that? He mentioned some interesting ones that I hadn't heard before. I do also wonder how much of it is just they've 
just been shell-shocked by COVID ripping through the country. And, you know, frankly, a lot of them probably want to just be well for a few weeks before they plan their next trip. But I, I think as they get past that, um, I, I'd be surprised if we don't see a pretty significant uptick coming back. I mean, if, if we do see this rebound in China and we get the revenge spending from the consumer that people have been hoping for, um, that's obviously good news for, for the mainland economy. There is a downside to that, though, isn't there? And I know something that you're focusing on. It, it could be inflationary for the global economy and we could see a, a sort of another pickup um, in inflation once again. Yeah, I think for global inflation numbers, the big concern is is really commodity prices and most importantly, oil. Uh, if we do see an incredible amount of pent-up demand from Chinese travel and tourism, and that p does push up oil prices, that of course can filter through to inflation and inflation expectations in the rest of the world. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, when at least when it comes to the U.S., uh, the U.S., trade with China, exports to China is 1% of GDP. Mm -hmm. So while, you know, the demand boost from China, you know, is likely to be there for the U.S., I have my doubts that it will be big enough to move the needle much on the U.S. economy uh, for growth and for inflation. Uh, places like Europe, you know, marginally more exposed to China and places obviously like Hong Kong, incredibly more exposed. So, yes, for Hong Kong, it, it does raise... Uh, growth and inflation concerns. James, if we look at the commodities markets, which is often where you see inflation, it's a bit of a mixed picture at the moment, isn't it? If you look at things like industrial metals, they're surging once again on this China sort of reopening. But then energy prices are falling. Oil has been falling. Natural gas um, has been falling. So it's hard to get a clear picture um, from the commodities markets of exactly what's going on on the inflation side. No, exactly. It doesn't really match with the China reopening story because uh, when we look at the uh, stock market, both in A shares and in Hansa Index, we can see the stocks started to bounce uh, at the end of October. Coincidentally, mm -hmm. that's where the uh, global M2 supply was also hitting the bottom. And then if we were looking at the commodities market, we can find out during September, November to December, the two months of the last year, um, the uh, uh, U.S. dollars, USDX uh, was uh, getting slammed, getting getting uh, clubbed like a baby seal. But uh, it dropped about dropped about uh, nine percent in two months. And then we look at the product, uh, the commodities price. We can see the commodities, uh, the index dropped by about another nine percent. So the uh, the uh, currency that these commodities were denominated by actually were getting slammed, but then the, the price of these commodities were dropped were dropping as well. So that was a, uh, a missing piece of the China reopening story. But then this changed after January 9th. Uh, we can see the stock markets in both the U.S. and the Europe starts started to bounce back, and then we see a comeback of commodity price, especially in industrial metals. And that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, you can say that's a lag, or you can say that people are starting to putting that missing piece into the China reopening story uh, by themselves. But uh, I don't really see a lot of, uh, like Will said, I don't really see a lot of inflationary pressure coming out of uh, China just because uh, the uh, China reopening story. Okay. Well, let me ask you about this U.S. jobs report, because that's been a big focus of the market since last week. 517,000 jobs in January, the highest since August 2022. 
and the jobless rate fell to the lowest level since 1969, down at 3.4%. It, it seemed a pretty astonishing jobs report. How, how is the US economy keeping on creating all these jobs, more than half a million in January? Well, there's two potential explanations. One is that it's just noise. Uh, so we should keep in mind that employment data is famously uh, revised. The seasonal adjustment on these numbers, uh, if I recall correctly, it's something like three million. Um, so uh, these are these are pretty pretty volatile mm. and noisy numbers. So I wouldn't get too worked up about them. That being said, um, it is possible that. Uh, when you when you look at it in conjunction with some of the other data we got, for example, the ISM services PMI showed a rebound. Now, there's actually two PMIs in the U.S., the ISM and the uh, S&P. The S&P one is still below 50. So They again, don't match, do they? They don't match. Two. So we're definitely getting very mixed data points on growth. Uh, and, and, and so one explanation is that there's frankly just noise. And if you look at a lot of the leading indicators in both the labor market and outside, Generally, they still point to slowing growth, and I think we're heading a bit to a recession. Uh, but it is possible that there is somewhat of a bounce in growth, particularly in the service sector, uh, as we transition back from goods product, goods consumption to toward services, you know, part of that post-COVID recovery hangover. Uh, and the service sector tends to be more labor-intensive. So mm -hmm. that is one potential explanation for why the labor market is holding up better than stuff like manufacturing PMIs and other leading indicators would suggest. Mm. We keep hearing a lot about these sharp job losses at tech companies, tens of thousands of people being laid off across the tech industry, but but these layoffs don't seem to be affecting the jobs numbers. Why, why, why is that? Yeah, um, well, I mean, there's, there's different sectors. And of course, again, part of this post-COVID uh, recovery hangover is the sectors that boomed and overhired during the recovery uh, are starting to lay off and the poster child for that is the tech sector. So so that that I, I, the simple explanation is that the, where there was excesses, they're getting uh, removed and the sectors mm. that there was not excesses like, I mean, there's still shortages of workers in restaurants and hotels and whatnot. Um, those services are, are 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 trying to rehire people now. The question is, can we, can you take a tech engineer and put them behind a, uh, a hotel <laughs> counter? I'm not sure, but uh, we'll see. it'll take time. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the market's it's behaving good. as if um, the the U.S. is coming out of a recession, that, that, but it hasn't even happened yet. We haven't even got into one. Do you think the U.S. can avoid that recession, or do you think um, it, it is going to slide into recession? There's actually a, a big debate going on within our firm at GovCal. We, we're, we're famous for not having a house view and airing our debates openly in front of our clients. And, and just yesterday, uh, we published a, a big debate between myself uh, and a couple of the partners, Louis Gov and Anatole Koletsky. So this, it's definitely a tough call to make today. I'm, I'm in the uh, recession camp uh, and have been for a while and, and, and remain there. Uh, and, and for me, the big driver of that is that financial conditions tighten significantly. Uh, now, some people will say, oh, if you look at the Bloomberg Financial Condition Index, they've eased significantly. And that looks at things like credit spreads and whatnot, and, and no doubt that has eased. But if you look at things like simply real yields in the economy uh, versus uh, you know the cost of borrowing, the real cost of borrowing capital versus the return you can get on investing that capital, that spread went from extraordinarily positive uh, to um, what I would say is marginally less than neutral, uh, signaling a recession. Now, it's actually rebounded very marginally to somewhere around neutral. 
but the rate of change is so dramatic that I think you're going to have all, a lot of companies that boomed during the recovery and borrowed uh, and, and expanded employment, expanded capacity when there was that extremely positive spread. And now they're going to have to pull back. And that's what recessions are made of. James, the, the importance of this for, for Hong Kong is what it's going to do for interest rates. And, and we've now seen in the markets that terminal rate, in other words, the peak that the markets anticipate U.S. interest rates to get to has creeped back above 5%. Uh, this morning it was at 5.1%. So that means, you know, we are going to, or certainly the markets are starting to anticipate once again higher rates, both in the U.S. and, of course, here in Hong Kong. Yes, uh, I think uh, uh, the Fed is in uh, between a hard place and a rock. And uh, if we look at the, the global M2, which, uh, it, it, it made a, uh, a local peak uh, in December, uh, in January. But if we look at the uh, the U.S. M2 supply, you can find out it has had a, a very worse month uh, for for uh, the past two decades. And uh, so we can see capital. Uh, being pushed back into the states while while the uh, Fed was trying to contain the FCI, mm. and then what Powell said after the uh, at at the press conference after the the interest rate hike, basically uh, undermined the uh, the hawkish stance that the Fed has been maintained for the past six months, and uh, so the market has more ground to fight fight the Fed. It's, it's been the, it, it is now the fourth time that market has been fighting the Fed. The three previous three times being the later half of last May and then from the, uh, the early July to August and then from November to early December. But now the fourth time, both in all those three times, the market has uh, lost and mm -hmm. then puked back what they have earned. But this time it looked like they have more ground to fight back. But then I still think Fed doesn't really know what they were doing because mm. the the, uh, the labor market was one thing that they missed out and FCI that they were so concerned about in the last five minutes was not really an issue now, uh, according to Jay Powell. So yeah, I think I think we're in a, in a in a very complicated time, and uh, I'm, I'm with Will. I think there is a recession coming on. Okay, we'll final word to you. The Fed could be fighting back tonight because uh, Jerome Powell's giving an important um, speech, isn't he? I mean, this he's got to really um, tight get financial conditions to tighten because they're they're loosening again with this big rally in the markets. Well, I think the Fed is actually having quite a bit of success so far. I mean, they're getting exactly what they would want. All the inflation data is softening. Uh, and at the same time, the growth data is not puking. Now, as I said, I think a lot of leading indicators still suggest that we're moving toward a recession, but it hasn't been a free fall dive. Uh, and indeed, there are some mixed indicators out there, some suggesting, you know, we may get the coveted soft landing that the Fed wants. So I think Powell is actually feeling pretty good about things at the moment. Uh, for him, the difficulty is, is, you know, do you pause now because what you've done so far seems to be working and why overdo it and why not wait and see how things progress before you continue tightening or loosen um, and, and I think there's a strong argument for that but the mm -hmm. the concern is is that as long as labor market data remains mixed and the labor market remains tight uh, the Fed is going to be worried that perhaps this decline in inflation is a head fake and it's going to come back in the second half and that's the argument for continuing to hike Okay. You know, based on the signaling, I think we may get one or two more 25 basis point hikes, but I think a pause mm -hmm. is, is coming up soon. Okay, well, thank you very much. That's Will Denyer, U.S. economist at Gavacal. James Wong, CEO of Cathasia Securities. <laughs>
You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Times 8.26. On the phone is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Morning, Peter. Uh, there's been a bit of excitement in the currency markets overnight. The yen's dropped over 1% on this Nikkei report that the Japanese government has approached uh, Bank of Japan Deputy Governor Masayoshi Amamiya about succeeding Haruhiko Kuroda as the next head of the BOJ, although the government did deny that yesterday. Nevertheless, what can you tell us about Mr. Amamiya? Well, I mean, he is one of the, uh, you know, one of the, he's been one of the favorite candidates for a while. Um, but I think that the fact that the government does seem to be focusing in and on him, homing in on him, does suggest a kind of um, hawkish outlook, uh, rather a dovish outlook for the Bank of Japan going forward. Now, Mr. Amamiya has been a very, very, uh, you know, loyal, um, basically, uh, ally. Of, Prime, of of uh, Governor Kuroda, and that's been uh, very well known in in market circles. But when you look at his uh, his arguments at BOJ policy meetings, he does tend to to hew towards the BOJ broadening its its balance sheet even more than we currently see. You know, in 2018, Japan's balance sheet topped the entire size of Japan's five trillion dollar economy, which is a first for a uh, group group of seven nation. And, you know, Amamiya is one of those officials who's quite comfortable with that and thinks that monetary policy could become even more expensive and more, uh, uh, I guess you can say, experimental going Mm. forward. So it does suggest that the fears in markets back in December when the BOJ made a very small tweak to yield levels, the fears back then was that the BOJ was going to exit quantitative easing, Amamiya would suggest that uh, that is not going to happen anytime soon. Suggests that the government's also, it's, it's looking for a safe appointment, isn't it? Doesn't want anyone to shake up things too much. That is true. But I also think that Prime Minister Kishida's approval numbers are in the mid-20s right now. Um, Japanese prime ministers don't tend to survive very long politically with poll numbers this low. And I think it does suggest that, you know, on the one hand, the government is not looking for anything radical from the BOJ. But on the other hand, it suggests, too, that the government doesn't have any policies that it can implement anytime soon to basically, you know, take the baton, that the BOJ mm. will remain in control of the economy, that, that monetary policy will remain a, a more dominant force than fiscal policy. So anyone hoping that Kishida would be a reformer in 2023 has to be disappointed by this kind of appointment. So what does it mean then? Does it mean that there's not really going to be any adjustments to this yield control policy and a yield curve control policy? And, and in effect, the Bank of Japan, which has got, out of the major central banks, the easiest monetary policy in the world at the moment, hasn't it? Despite um, inflation moving up quite, uh, quite rapidly now. Well, in some ways, Japan is sort of uh, captive to what happens in the U.S. and China at this point, right? I mean, in many ways, a lot of the yen dynamics you've seen over the last few months have related more to what Jerome Powell is doing than what Governor Kuroda is doing here in Tokyo. So in many ways, Japan is looking at this tension between the U.S. and China. It's looking at the fact that U.S. rates and Japanese rates are diverging even further. It's looking at the fact that the People's Bank of China it's also a diversion from the Fed. And I think in many ways, Japan is just trying to keep its head down and avoid the collateral damage from all of this. But I do think that in many ways, the outlook for the yen, the outlook for Japan's economy 
probably has a lot more to do with what happens in Washington and Beijing than what happens in Tokyo anytime soon. We're getting a lot of tourists back, you know, now that the economy is reopening, and that is a great thing. That might actually have helped Japan in the fourth quarter of last year in terms of returning to growth. But the outlook really is like kind of China-U.S. play at this point. Okay, William, thank you very much indeed. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And over in Tokyo, the Nikkei 225 right now is up a quarter of a percent. In Australia, the SX200 has risen 0.1%. Uh, the Cosby also moving in a positive direction, up a quarter of a percent. Uh, Going to be a similar story for the Hang Seng at the Open, which is expected to rise 25 points. Um, thank you very much for listening. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for further money talk. Coming up after the news is back chats with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy. The visibility is going to be rather low in some areas. Sunny intervals during the day and a maximum temperature of around 23 degrees. The outlook is for it to be mainly cloudy with some mist in the next couple of days and then windier on Wednesday. The temperature right now is 20 degrees, 86% relative humidity. Times 8.31 with the half-hour news. Here's Barry O'Rourke. Rescue efforts are continuing in southern Turkey and northern Syria following two powerful earthquakes which have killed more than 3,800 people. Blizzards and nighttime conditions are making it even more difficult to locate and retrieve people trapped under collapsed buildings. Many rescuers have been working with their bare hands. Medical resources are stretched on both sides of the border and hospitals have little or no power. Mohammed Hamza from the agency Islamic Relief said healthcare services are being overwhelmed. We already started to deliver medical items to our supported health facilities, which are full of injured people and out of our, of our control. Actually, we have like more than 4,000 injured and needs an immediate health care. Turkey's President Erdogan has described the disaster as Turkey's worst since 1939. Dr. Osama Salum is an emergency doctor at a Syrian hospital near the Turkish border. Our staff so limited. We have a limitation, resources by equipment, and the injuries are still coming to our hospital, and we have to deal with them. There is no way to refer uh, this, uh, these injuries to another hospital because all of the hospital completely occupied and some of hospital out of service. Meanwhile, Beijing has acknowledged that a balloon spotted flying over Latin America is from China. A similar balloon that flew across the western US was shot down. Mao Ning from the foreign ministry said the second balloon was not a threat. As regards to the balloon over Latin America, we can confirm that the relevant unmanned airship is from China. It is of a civilian nature. It was used for flight tests. It was blown off course by the weather. Its manoeuvrability is limited. In Argentina, five Argentine amateur rugby players have been sentenced to life imprisonment for beating to death a young man outside a nightclub three years ago. Three others were sentenced to 15 years. The murder of Fernando Baez Sosa shocked the country and raised questions about racism and class division in Argentina. The 18-year-old law student was kicked and punched after one of his friends accidentally bumped into one of the rugby players. The victim's family lawyer, Fernando Belando, said all eight men should have been sentenced to life in prison and that he would appeal. This was premeditated. Everyone had their role. Determining the secondary participation will probably be the easiest way for us to resolve this and in some way find a sense of balance for Fernando's family. 
And finally, a panel investigating a plane crash in Nepal that killed 72 people last month has found that the plane's engine had no thrust motion, meaning no power in the last leg of its descent. The Yeti Airlines flight from Kathmandu to the tourist town of Pokhara crashed on landing before catching fire, killing everyone on board. The five-person committee has been appointed by the Nepalese government to investigate the accident. There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about the $580 billion project to build three artificial islands off Lantau to 